Thank you. Welcome to everyone. Wow, what a beautiful day. I hope you're enjoying getting to uh, feel that breeze coming in. Um, I actually, every time the wind blows out here, I remember the Holy Spirit because it's the same word. It actually is that reminder of us that God is, he wants to be a part of what's going on here. He wants to be a part of our journey. And uh, you just hopefully met some new people. Uh, Most people are not from this county when we gather together, and we're so glad to be a part of that. I want to take just a moment and pray one more time before we go into the word. We lost someone in our community this week that was a hard loss. Of course, all the losses are hard, but uh, this was a young lady who was a coach in our uh, Nordic ski program and had a lot of influence, had a lot of people who she affected in a, a very great way, died tragically um, in an accident up on the mountains. And you know, it's, it's a reminder to me, even the places where we feel we're safe, often out here, we're in some danger. We really are. So here's what I'm going to do. I'll pray for those who have experienced the loss of Hannah Taylor. And while I'm doing that, if you're from somewhere else and you know of some loss that's been experienced there, why don't you pray and talk to God about that as well? Let's pray. Lord, we do remember Hannah today. We remember the uh, impact that she had on so many, many of the students and the families that are a part of our local congregation and hundreds in our community as I went to the the uh, celebration of her life and, and was surprised by how many people were there. And uh, God, it was a brutal loss. It was. It was brutal in many ways. Um, we're reminded of how fragile we are. We're reminded that we are adventurous. And so we ask you to give us insight today into adventure as we consider uh, part of your Beatitudes. But Lord, we pray for her family, we pray for her friends here, the people in the uh, school system, the people in her programs that loved her and cared for her. Uh, Give them comfort through their grief and their loss right now. And uh, we remember all those. Many are praying right now on behalf of their circumstances. So we ask that you bring that comfort through your spirit. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in a series that is about the Beatitudes. It might be a little different from what you've heard in the past. I'll just give you that right up front. Because we're calling this the Great Reversal. We're saying actually have thought that might be the key elements of the Beatitudes. And actually, that's because it was a very common form of communication to say, here are the ones who are the blessed ones. This is a state of being. It was very common in Jesus' day, and it's kind of common in our day, but this formula that Jesus uses was extraordinarily confident, uh, and it had been so for hundreds of years. And he goes back and says, these are the ones who are blessed. These are the ones who are actually the ones who could, we could hold in the highest esteem. Typically, prior to that, they would have said, well, those are the, the wealthy, the powerful, the people who have large families and own a lot of land. And that would be a typical description of someone who is blessed. Jesus comes in, starts his ministry... I don't know if you've ever put the Beatitudes in this context. It's almost the very first time Jesus opens his mouth and starts to speak, at least as Matthew tells it to us. Um, And he says, actually, these people look a little different than what you thought. The blessed ones are the poor. 
the poor in spirit. The blessed ones are the ones who mourn. The blessed ones are the ones who actually have been relegated to a lower caste. And the blessed ones we're going to look at today are those who hunger and thirst. Now, how many of you decided this morning, um, I'd really like to mourn a little bit more today? Anybody decide that was a good idea? Probably not. How many of you thought, well, I would really like to be a little poorer today? Anybody decide that was... See, it's funny because we kind of try to put these as a primary ethic that we want to aspire towards, and maybe Jesus had something else in mind. And that's why, actually, as we're talking through this, we think... He took the typical and made it atypical and flipped it around and spoke of the atypical and said, actually, these are the blessed ones. So turn with me, if you have a Bible there, or an electronic version, I'm going to use my electronic version here, and we're going to go to Matthew chapter 5. The beginning of this shows up in Luke 6 as well, and then the end of this great sermon actually is scattered in a couple other places in Luke. So we're going to stay to Matthew chapter 5. And look at what Jesus has to say. Be ready because this is going to be short. It's Matthew 5, verse 6, and it's very, very compact. Jesus said this. Read it with me out loud. Here we go. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Let's say it again. If you, now you can probably remember. Here we go. Say it together out loud. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, it's interesting because the hunger and thirst would maybe be something you'd think we'd want to focus on. I can tell you from looking at it, it's nothing out of the ordinary. This is not a hunger that is like a starvation type of hunger. This is a typical hunger. This is also not a thirst that is, I am right on the edge of death. This is a typical type of thirst. And Jesus is referencing that. He also says, they'll be filled. Now, the filling is interesting. I don't know if you ever think about this. My wife and I just went uh, to the Royal Gorge this last Monday and did a meal trip on that train. How many of you have gotten to do that? If you get a chance to do that, do that. It is an awesome experience. But when we were riding along, beautiful gourmet meal prepared for us, and we're looking in the canyons, it was spectacular. When we got done with the meal, Jenny said to me, man, I'm not going to need to eat till next Thursday. Now, is that really true? No, it isn't. In fact, we probably ate the next day. But there's that sense of satisfaction, even though it's temporary. And that's what this filling is. It's not a final fulfillment. It's not the last step. It is actually a temporary step, but it's meaningful. Here's the two things that it does for us. Number one, being hungry and thirst alive. You're not aware of the fact that you needed to eat something or you needed to drink something. You would not keep living. Your body actually is sending you signals for survival. The other thing is this. It keeps us in a constant state of dependence. We have to say, wow, I can't produce this out of the sky. I have to get this from someplace. Both of those things are actually very good. And if you think of them figuratively, that's what Jesus is doing. And actually, that was also a common form all the way through. A lot in the Psalms and in the Proverbs to say... If you hunger and thirst for something, that's a reminder. I suggest this. If your stomach starts rumbling a little bit sometime today, next week, remember 
you depend on God. That's a good thing to do. That would be a very positive thing for you to do. But the key word, I think, actually in here is the idea of righteousness. Now, righteousness, we're going to look at here in a little bit, and you're going to say, well, that's a pretty big term. I'm going to walk you through it because this passage is going to help us. But I want you to know that uh, poverty, mourning, these other things, and hungering and thirst for righteousness, it actually makes sense that this might be a tough deal. It's not a, you know, a very simple kind of a, oh, we want to have a little better relationship. How many of you have ever worked with teenagers in any way, shape, or form? A bunch of you have. I have done it for years and years. The standard thing when you go on a camp trip or you go, you know, on a mission trip or whatever, you ask them, so what are some of your goals for this trip? What do you think is a typical goal for a teenager on a youth group trip with a church? Almost always it goes something like this. I want to grow closer to God. Now, I'm not mocking that. I'm not mocking that. But that's the way they have to kind of articulate something that actually is way big, but they say, well, I want to grow closer to God. Actually, this is not something that's going to be that friendly, if you will. If it was that friendly, it wouldn't fit in this list. It would not fit in all of these things that Jesus is going to say. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at, if we're going to hunger and thirst for righteousness, let's find out what that righteousness means. Right now in your mind, you have an idea of what righteousness means. I want to do one thing for sure. The writings of Paul, where the most prolific writing about righteousness is in the book of of, uh, Romans, probably has a different idea to it. It's more developed than what Jesus would have been talking about at this point. It's more understood as to what actually happened on the cross and on the burial and the resurrection and the ascension and all of those things were complete. When Matthew wrote this, and probably he wrote it a little bit later, but when he captured these ideas, Jesus was just starting the message at this point. So righteousness, we're going to go into this passage and see what we can find. If you have a Bible with you there... Go to chapter 3, just a couple pages back, and we're going to look and see what Jesus starts off using the word in his own discussion. Now, the context of this is John the Baptist is baptizing down by the Jordan River, and people are coming to him, and Jesus comes up and says, I need you to baptize me. Now, why did Jesus need to be baptized? (laughs) That's a pretty simple question, right? But there's not a very simple answer Honestly, it wasn't because he needed to repent from sin. That We have no evidence of that whatsoever. But it was an initiation point. He's starting something here. Something's going to get going. So he goes to John in verse 13 of chapter 3. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, but you're coming here to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. The timing is critical because of the initiation point. It's proper for us to do this. Why? To fulfill all righteousness. What is Jesus talking about there? Is it that it would have been sin if he hadn't gotten baptized? No. What it is, is there's a bigger plan going on here, John. And this plan has been going together involving the Messiah, me, 
for a very, very long time. And we're initiating something right here today that's going to happen on earth that's going to change everything. It's the day that things kicked off, if you will. So the righteousness has a sense of the Messiah and this great adventure in history going on. Turn over to chapter 5, back where we are in the Beatitudes, and verse 10. Jesus says some things here. Of course, this is in the very list of the Beatitudes. He mentions righteousness again. He says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, he had said that at the beginning. So we're talking, we're initiating a kingdom work that's going on, and there's persecution involved. Now, let me ask you this. How many of you decided this morning, you know, if I go down to the amphitheater, I'll probably get some more persecution today? Anybody imagine that? It might have been a little tricky down here while a bunch of things were going on, but there's no persecution. There's no abject resistance. There's no one shooting at anyone, right? This is hard for us to grasp as Americans in our scenario. It really is. We deem things, we call them persecution that are not. They're just not. They may be a little headwind, a little resistance. But Jesus is talking about full-on persecution. We'll talk about that at greater length in a few weeks. But just realize that it's the kingdom enacted, the Messiah work, that plan of God going into work, and it's going to bring about persecution, resistance, and headwind. That's the second aspect of righteousness. Turn with me to verse 17. It's just a couple verses down in this same list. Now, Jesus says this, Don't think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. It was common to use the word abolish, and you use that word abolish when somebody quit obeying something. In effect, you wiped it off the books. In effect, you've just eradicated it. Jesus said, Don't think I came to get rid of the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, to fulfill them. Have you ever noticed this pattern? Right before the law, the Mosaic law, what was happening in the life of God's people? Where were they? They're in Egypt, right? How long had they been in Egypt? Four centuries they had been there. How much had they heard directly from God through prophets or, or, or writings? Nothing. For four centuries. Then Moses comes along and the whole thing changes. And look what Jesus does here. He, after four centuries, since they have come back from Babylon and they haven't heard from any prophets and God has been absent from the temple, Jesus says, I am basically the second Moses. Now don't see that as a resurrection it is i am coming and i'm not wiping out the law and the prophets i'm going to fulfill the law and the prophets and the standard is not moving that's the critical piece of this jesus did not come right now in our society we're saying we're going to move all the standards we're going to make them we're going to lower the standards so that nobody feels any shame nobody feels any disappointment in themselves so we're going to make everything okay everything is fine just bring the standards down 
Does that sound like what Jesus is talking about here? In fact, when we listen to the list, he goes through issue after issue after issue, and he says this, you thought it was as simple as not sleeping with your neighbor that was, uh, you know, adultery. I'm telling you, if you just decided to do it in your mind, you, you did adultery. He makes it, not only recaps it, he makes it harder. Jesus brought the bad news before he brought the good news, if you will. So, he's saying the righteousness here, he says, I've come to not to wipe this out, but to fulfill it. For I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, the yod, the little stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. It's an interesting story that he's referring to. It was a common teaching of the rabbis. The yod looks like a little kind of single quotation mark. And what, there's a common story that when Sarai's name was changed to Sarah, the yod was taken off, and the yod started complaining to God about being removed from the story. The yod, the letter, was complaining, which doesn't make any sense, but that's the way the rabbis taught it. And then it finally was reinserted when Joshua showed up. That was the beginning of his name. The yod showed back up. They also have a story that King Solomon tried to wipe out all of the yodes from the Bible. And God said, ain't gonna happen. That's not what we're gonna do. The point is this. Every detail, even the smallest little piece, matters. Does it mean we keep it the exact same way we kept it in the time of Moses? No, it does not. But now you've got the work to do, and I'm going to be here to help you to think redemptively as to how we move along and make decisions. But these things still matter. Don't just strike them from the record. So Jesus is basically saying, in effect, righteousness is like that. Here's how he finishes. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands, teaches others accordingly, will be called the least in the kingdom. Remember, we're talking about the kingdom being enacted and alive. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you'll not be a part of this kingdom work. You're not a kingdom-type person. See what he did with righteousness? He's not lowering the standard. He said, this is about the kingdom. This is my messianic work. There's going to be persecution. It's going to be hard. And I am not making the law easier for you. I'm going to do something else with the law, but I am sure not going to just wipe it off the books. That may be the most helpful picture we get in here. Now, a couple verses over, in 6 verse 1, he says this, gives us a little more insight into righteousness. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. You see what he just did there? This is not about you glorifying yourself by accomplishing living into all of those laws. It's not about you. This is about you living and fulfilling something that reflects the glory of God to everybody around you. That's what righteousness looks like. A reflection of God, not accomplishment that you get to pat yourself on the back for. I don't know if you know anybody who's had shoulder surgery. My favorite thing, you know the people that get that little pillow 
stuck under here, and now they've got the shoulder. I'm like, how do you hurt yourself? Patting yourself on the back? You know, because I know I do that a lot, and I suppose they probably do too. Jesus is like, that's not what this is about. This is not about you feeling like you can esteem yourself as worthy of everybody's praise and attention. This is, as the kingdom moves along, and there's persecution in it, and it's fulfillment of the law, but it's to the glory of God. And that's the next step. And the last piece is this. At the end of chapter 6, and around in 32, verse 32, he says this. So, don't worry saying, look at what these words are. What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Do you remember what he was talking about back at the beginning? Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now he says, don't worry about not having enough to eat, being hungry. Don't worry about not having enough to drink, being thirsty. That's what the pagans do. They're, they're worried about all that stuff. But your heavenly Father knows what you need. But instead, seek first the kingdom coming alive and that righteousness and all of these things. You will experience fulfillment. You'll experience what you need to survive. You'll also be filled, as he said. This is a long connection, but it actually makes sense when you think about it because every single day has enough trouble to its own. So when you play this all out, it looks like this. I'm going to see if I can read it as a summary of righteousness. For kingdom-type people, they hunger and thirst for an experience that has fulfillment along the journey, but it's temporary, and it tastes like this. It's God's great plan enacted in Jesus, provoking persecution while longing for the highest ethics to be true, requiring behaviors and beliefs that are to God's glory, set in a trusting covenant relationship with God. Now that can sound very, very abstract, because there's so much going on. But what I don't want you to think is just this was a simple thing that Jesus said, oh, if you just hunger and thirst for something that's right, it's not that simple. It's far more thorough. And then I thought this, and this, I don't know if you think this way, but I'm thinking, who in the world do I know, have I ever met, who fills in the blanks on that? Have I ever met anybody? I'll be honest with you, I had to think a long time, because it's not me. It's not me that fills this in, fills in all the blanks of that process with persecution and with a longing for rightness that happens around them and the kingdom coming to bear and being willing to be hungry. I, I couldn't think of until I thought of Georgie Benz. When we, Jenny and I were, uh, right after we were married in the mid-80s, that's what, 100 years ago, wasn't it, Jenny? I think it was. We were in a church uh, back in Indiana, and there was an exchange that happened between our government and the government of the Soviet Union at that time that brought her, along with several American spies, to the spy bridge and traded out for Soviet spies. And one of the guys, no kidding, was a pastor. That was his only qualification. But this guy had been sent to the gulags for over 20 years. And here was his story. Georgie Vince would rally people to the gospel. He would say, we need to be about what is true in kingdom work. We need to express this to our neighbors. 
we need to run the risk of persecution. We need to do what it takes. He would rally people together. They'd start coming. He'd be training young people. Somebody would tell the police. They'd come and get him. They'd send him to a gulag out in uh, Siberia. He'd be there for two years, five years, one year, seven years. It was remarkable. Away from his family, away from the people that he loved, and then randomly, almost arbitrarily, the government would say, we think you've learned your lesson, so you can go back. What do you think he did when he got back at home? He said, you know what we need to do? We need to be about enacting the kingdom right here in our neighborhoods. We need to tell people about the truth of the gospel. We need to run the risk of persecution. I'm here to tell you, what's the worst they can do? Kill you? This went on for year after year after year after year until finally he was actually... I think the Soviet Union, to be honest with you, didn't know what to do with them. And they said, here, you take them. We'll scrape the gum off of our shoe and we'll give it to you. You guys take care of this guy. And I remember walking through the halls of our church and I would encounter Georgie Vins and I thought, man, if there's anybody who hungers and thirsts for the kingdom of God to come to bear, it's this person. Now, the other thought that we could have that's related to it for us, that has to do with us, is this. What are the barriers, what are the things that replace a hunger and thirst for righteousness in our lives? What is it in yours? What is it in mine? What are the things that replace it? Um, It could be the simple big three, money, sex, power, right? It could be this, where we miss the point. I think for a lot of us right now in our society, it's actually the lure of drama and information. We don't seem to be able to get enough stuff off of social media and off of every other media outlet that we can possibly get. We can't get enough of it. We hunger for that. We thirst for that. Instead of hungering and thirsting for rightness to come to bear. Now, I don't know what happens in your heart and your mind, and I sure do not mean to bring you into a place of shame, but I know that I personally feel like there's work for me to do. But, here's the critical piece, I can't do it on my own. I can't transform my heart on my own. And, this is even harder, advocate for myself. Think about where the most righteousness comes. It's when people advocate on behalf of others when they're marginalized, when they are helpless, when they are shoved under the rug. And the heart changes because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul, in that great book of Romans, said this, Therefore, it is your logical, obvious act of worship to Be transformed. It's a passive idea. Be transformed. Have your mind, have your heart, have your believer transformed so that you hunger and thirst for righteousness. And only the Holy Spirit can really produce that in you as you act accordingly. As you live into the ethic. As you can. As you hold up righteousness as you pick up others and God is transforming your heart and your mind.
We continue next week, and hopefully as you've been listening today, you've been able to say, God, there's something here for me. I don't know, uh, maybe there's something specific that you know is a barrier that is happening inside of you. Let's bow our heads right now. Lord, I uh, remember this great work. We'll be receiving an offering, we'll be receiving communion from you here in just a moment as we uh, commune together. But Lord, what I ask you to do is work inside of our hearts and our minds right now. Identify maybe one area that's tangible. One place where we are hungering and thirsting for that as an idol, as a replacement for your righteousness, your kingdom work to be done. Your highest ethic being upheld in truth. Uh, At the expense of persecution. Work in our hearts and minds, Lord. Thank you for the teaching of Jesus as he then lived into all of these great ideals and he exhibited them for us. Thank you for that. We pray that in Jesus' name.